I do think that the transfer of wealth will make it very difficult to take somebody that just avoided all the capital gains on their run-up in Apple and Google and Amazon and tell that person they should now go into a mutual fund. The advancement of technology of the UMA and the transfer of wealth and the volatility that we've had over the past three months, I think they're all meeting at almost the perfect time. When Jeff Gitterman founded his wealth management firm over 30 years ago, the world was a very different place. And so was investing. But as the world changed, Jeff has adjusted his thinking on social and environmental issues, along with his ideas on the best financial structures to deliver on his clients' long-term goals. This led him to launch one of the first unified managed account programs with a climate-focused mandate. We discussed what led him to switch to UMAs, why more advisors should be using them, and the Sustainable UMA Summit on this episode of the Wealth Management Today podcast. Hey everyone, it's a pleasure to spend time with you here in the world of wealth tech. This is the Autonomous Zone version of the WM Today podcast, and I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz. I run a consulting firm called Ezra Group, and we help wealth management companies make better technology and business decisions through our advice and research. On this podcast, I speak with some of the smartest people in our industry who are on the leading edge of both technology and innovation. Before I forget, please subscribe wherever you are listening to podcasts and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And remember to share this episode on your social media networks. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I wanted to give a little preamble before we start the interview uh, about how Jeff Gitterman and I met. Well, we met, I think, five years ago, and Jeff reached out to me uh, coincidentally because his grandmother, one of his grandmothers, Last name was Iskowitz. Uh, we're not related, but it was just a funny coincidence. Then we started us talking, and uh, we saw each other at conferences. Remember those things you used to we used to go to all over the country conferences? Yeah. So we met at conferences a lot. Uh, I'd see his firm, and we talk and catch up and see what's going on with the industry. Uh, and I was always interested in his his ESG focus and some of the things he was doing. And uh, we finally were able to spend some time uh, to interview and to talk about his use of unified managed accounts and how. Uh, he's really uh, adjusted his firm thinking and his, his whole investment philosophy around UMAs and to support his goals of more sustainable investing um, and, uh, and ESG. So uh, this, this uh, episode was a long time coming. Uh, I really hope you enjoy it. And here we go. And my guest on this episode of the Wealth Management Day podcast I'm happy to introduce Jeff Gitterman, co-founder of Gitterman Wealth Management. Hey, Jeff. Hey, how's it going, Craig? Wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks for being on the program, Jeff. Thanks for having me. And I just want to also introduce throw out some of your other accomplishments. You're the co-host of the Impact TV show, which airs on Bloomberg TV. You're the author of, Blue, of Beyond Success, Redefining the Meaning of Prosperity, and an associate producer of the feature documentary film, Planetary. A lot of good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> when you That's sleep. it. It's all my accomplishments. I'm done. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff, you know. 
like we were saying before, not everyone has all these accomplishments. It takes a lot of effort to, to get stuff done. A lot of people start things and, and they never finish. So, Thank you. What, what made you want to do all this other stuff besides just being running your own advisory firm? You know, I just, I, I've been an active meditator since I'm 13 years old and just traveled in circles where I wanted to have more of an impact. Mm-hmm. <laughs> frankly, I think the bigger question is how come I didn't do more of this stuff in my financial firm sooner? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I was doing all these things on the side and then finally realized that I'd be more fulfilled if I was doing this stuff within my day-to-day job. So that, mm-hmm. that's been the effort the last five or six years is how to bring more of that focus into the financial so once, speaking of the financial part, why don't you give us a quick overview of, uh, of Gitterman Wealth Management? Sure. We're about a billion three in assets under management. We serve mostly college faculty. We've been working in this market in other forms of the firm um, since 1999, really. So we, we work in the New Jersey College Pension Plan um, and also direct with clients as well. And then for the last four or five years, we also outsource our CIO services around ESG and sustainable investing. So we do both and we host the United Nations Sustainable Investment Conference in the last couple of years. And that's grown to be probably the largest conference around ESG and sustainable investing in the advisor marketplace. We can talk about sustainable investing and ESG. That's a whole program in itself. But what I wanted to discuss today were, were unified managed accounts. And I was surprised when we were talking that how much you use UMAs because most RIAs don't use them. Why did you decide to go the UMA route? Yeah, you know, honestly, it all really started about two years ago. It started first with looking at market growth and and where we had come on a capital gains exposure basis, especially in a lot of tech stocks. And I, I just started thinking back to '99 and, and early 2000 and. And I remembered what happened after that, that, that period is that clients were calling up and freaking out and complaining about the fact that they were getting hit with these huge tax bills mm-hmm. and they were losing money in their accounts. And they, they couldn't comprehend that. They couldn't comprehend that they were down 15, 20 percent in 2000, 2001, 2002. Um, and still, you know, in some almost every one of those years were still getting hit with capital gains. And that really led me to start really thinking about the fact that we were right back in that position two years ago. And how was I going to address that with clients? And then we were starting to do a little bit in dabbling with separately managed accounts. But the problem with separately managed accounts, at least from our vantage point, um, maybe other people have solved it better, is that because of each one maybe billing differently and our billing and the manager's billing, we had to put each separately managed account in a different custodial account on mm-hmm. fidelity. Um, clients couldn't see a comprehensive, really good performance reporting. There was overlap in securities. Clients wanted to know why was I losing money in Apple and both or making money yeah. in Apple and, and both. And it, it just was missing a lot of, features that made it easy to, to do. Mm-hmm. So we started investigating and uh, really at that point met with Parametric and the Tixis and started evaluating what it would look like to create our own UMA models mm-hmm. um, independently. So, so you chose the Tixis. Why did you chose the Tixis over Parametric? 
you know, we were already outsourcing our mutual fund models. And what we realized pretty quickly is that if we were going to build UMAs for our own firm, um, they were probably going to be attractive to other firms as well. And uh, Natix has really had an edge on billing services and the technology of billing. Um, they both do taxless harvesting well. They, they both have a lot of features that if you're an advisory firm just looking to build it for yourself, probably both are equal. Mm. But in our case, because we were outsourcing it, Parametric has not really built out the technology because they work through SEI and SEI does a lot of that outsource model delivery. So Parametric, mm. I, I would imagine, I don't know this is the reason for a fact, probably doesn't want to compete with SEI since they're a huge client mm. of, of Parametrics. Could be. But the Texas, um, we were able to utilize the services and also do much more seamless billing for ourselves, the managers, the other advisor. You had all these pieces. If we were going to outsource, deliver, that had to be seamless to the end client and to the advisor. So there's tax advantages that you're taking that you're bringing to to the plate here. Yeah, that that's the other big thing to work with the Texas because. Natixis can do tax loss harvesting and tax overlay strategies on these models. So it really starts with the client. Let's say you have a client coming in with a basket of securities. The first thing you could do is run those basket of securities through Natixis before you do anything and make sure that if there are securities that are held already that are being held in the model that we're delivering, that those securities don't need to be sold. They can be transfer it right into the portfolio. So that's the first step. Second step is they're going to make sure since we're using nine managers in our models that there isn't an overlap on securities, um, especially when they start being traded, because you could have an instance where a growth manager is selling a security on the same day that a value manager is buying it, or probably the other way around, probably have a value manager selling it and a growth manager maybe buying it, but still, you want to eliminate that. You don't want to trigger short-term trading. You don't want to trigger capital gains. So they manage that process as well. They also manage the liquidation process. They can do tax loss harvesting on short-term positions by swapping in um, ETFs that mirror the indexes. And that was another big thing with Natixis is that because we're running ESG strategies, we had to work with a company that had built out ESG tracking indexes that can be substituted for those security positions to avoid the 30-day wash sale. So it's a lot of moving pieces. And also, you know, look, they're a trillion-dollar manager. And if I'm going to an advisor and saying we're delivering this great capability for me to do it as a billion three RIA and, and be holding all your money and managing all your trading, probably a scary proposition. But if it's Natixis with a trillion in assets, makes that conversation a lot easier. And they just have a phenomenal team and, and platform that's been superior in delivering service for us and the outsourced advisors that we're working with. One of the reasons why you were doing this was to bring SMAs down market. Can you explain why yeah. you were doing that and how far down market you're going? Yeah, so you know when you're dealing with an SMA, it's getting better. But two years ago, a lot of SMA managers, especially on the fixed income side, I mean, you can have fixed income managers that have $25 million minimums on some of their green bond and muni bond um, issues. And we were wrestling with, look, how do we deal with an unbelievably low interest rate environment, start moving out of bond funds and more into individual bonds. So how do we bring that down to clients that are, you know, sub 
million dollar accounts. And also on the equity side, how do you deliver a comprehensive blend of SMA managers? Let's say it's a moderate portfolio where you have 50% in digital bonds and 50% in equity. So you're only delivering 500,000 to eight managers. It's really difficult to do that direct on an SMA platform, um, almost impossible. But because in this instance, the SMA managers deliver their trades to Natixis and don't manage them themselves, they're willing to go much further down scale in size, some down to 40, 50,000, where they might be, you know, 250 minimums direct because they're not managing those smaller individual trading lots and it's being done in a basket by Natixis. So it it really, look, I want to reduce expenses for the end client. we're obviously in a battle with, you know, low-cost ETFs, and that's certainly the last two years been one of the biggest, you know, sales engines for asset management companies. So how do we deliver that kind of cost proposition or, or get closer to those price points um, but deliver more value? And, and to me, the UMA can do that. A mutual fund, you know, you have to believe really in active management over passive at this point, which I do firmly, but but you can deliver much more quality of investment themes and tax overlay strategies with the UMA model. And now it's, it's easy to use. It used to be difficult. And also, look, look, if you do seven or eight managers, that's a separate agreement with each manager for each client to sign off on. In a UMA, it's a master agreement that covers all managers. And because we're running the models, If we move a manager in or out of the model, that does not require additional paperwork for the end client. So it just literally makes life much simpler. I know you've probably seen this, but I think Cerulli cited UMAs as probably be the fastest growing product segment of the RA marketplace over the next few years. That may be a projection. The problem is that they've been promising that UMAs are going to be exploding in growth and taking over for the last 10 years, and they really haven't grown. So why do you think more... RIAs aren't using SMAs with all these advantages. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely that difficulty of moving a manager in and out. You know, when you want to sell a mutual fund, it's in a model, it's easy, it's seamless. If you have your own trading um, system and you're trading on your mutual fund models, it's just one press of a button if you have any of the decent trading software programs. Mm -hmm. Um, But all of a sudden you're in an SMA how do you deal with that difficulty of going to the client, explaining to the client that you've got to get rid of this manager? Who manages the sale of those securities? What do you do with the tax positions in that account that you don't want to sell because you're trying to do tax loss harvesting? Now you've got to put them in another account and then open a new account for the new separate account manager that comes in. And, and that level of complexity if you're managing a firm with, you know, a few hundred clients and trying to face-to-face meet those clients or now virtually meet those clients regularly, it's just a huge task for a small advisor to do. Um, oddly, though, we find $5 billion and $10 billion advisory firms still using mutual fund models, and that yeah. has been a little shocking to me. I do, though, think that the transfer of wealth will make it very difficult to take somebody that just avoided all the capital gains on their run-up in Apple and Google and Amazon and tell that person they should now go into a mutual fund account with that inheritance. So I, I think, you know, the ease of technology or the advancement of technology of the UMA 
and the transfer of wealth and the volatility that we've had over the past three months. I think they're all meeting at almost the perfect time. And the one other thing, if you're doing ESG investing, you can be exclusionary on themes in a UMA. We can manage that at the Natixis level. So you can say no tobacco, no firearms, no nuclear as an individual. And you could even go as far as saying, you know what, I checked all these boxes, but you're still holding this company that I just have a huge problem with, whatever the reason. And you can then also exclude on the individual security level. And with the desire of the end investor to be more and more in control of who they support and don't support as a company, that's not going away. I mean, that's going to get bigger and bigger um, through both of the crises we're dealing with, climate change that we'll deal with. So giving that end client that, that last bit of exercise of control in an actively managed UMA platform. I mean, I've been pitching it to clients. Clients always ask me after I present, you know, switching from mutual fund model to UMA model. They, they say, okay, what's the downside? And I, there is no downside to a UMA model, except if you're trying to get into an account, you know, under 250, really, then you really have to use mutual fund models. I'd like to take a break from this interview to talk about one of my favorite sponsors, the Invest in Others Foundation. Invest in Others is a nonprofit a charitable foundation that raises money to provide funding for advisors, charities, charities that financial advisors are working with and are dedicated to. And I've been working with them for quite some time. And uh, I'm honored to be part of their judging panels to select the advisors' charities who get funding and are awarded uh, big checks, uh, checks $40,000, dollars $60,000 at a time that really help these charities out. And the, they have a number of different award categories. And the one that uh, we just did the judging, I won't tell you who won, but it was the Global Impact Award. So these are advisors and charities that help people all over the world. We reviewed eight different charities that advisors were helping, and they were in countries like Haiti, Kenya, Nicaragua, Uganda, South Africa, where they're helping children who are orphaned due to HIV AIDS in South Africa, or orphaned for other reasons in Uganda, and are, are sleeping on, on dirt floors, and how do we help them? Uh, raising money to, to build schools, to build to build uh, medical facilities, to teach different skills, to help them uh, build out businesses, whether they're raising animals or they're working with computers or they're uh, learning other skills and making different uh, communities self-sufficient. So many good causes. It was very difficult for us to pick which one of these uh, worthy causes were, were getting the awards, but you'll find out in a couple weeks which one won. And in the meantime, you should go to investinothers.org and make a donation, get your company to make a donation. And if you're a financial advisor, consider submitting yourself or having someone submit you and the work you're doing with your charity to the Invest in Others Foundation. Maybe you can get an award for your charity next time. Uh, there's a lot. This is happening all the time throughout the year. And they're having their big, uh, I, think, I think, a big golf event uh, at the end of the summer. Hopefully, they'll be able to have that where they raise a lot of money. And again, go to investinothers.org and help out. Thanks a lot. Wouldn't the layers, multiple layers of manager fees be a problem? Yeah, you know, in this case, we've been able to bundle it um, at about 70 basis points. And that's the underlying manager, the Texas and their tax overlay strategy and their trading 
platform and our manager delivery platform. So you're getting, you know, all of that at 70 basis points. Our mutual fund models right now run 70 basis points. Um, so it, it's not comparable when you add all the features in to be able to get that pricing. And the larger we can grow, the more we could push that pricing down, which is something we really can't do in the mutual fund world. So there are breakpoints built into that, but we're, we're entering in at the first breakpoints at 70 basis points. That is reasonable. Yeah, we've, we've had people shocked, basically, because if they're using separately managed accounts on platforms, whether it be, you know, a first affirmative or an investnet or wherever it might be, a lot of them, you know, are paying close to that now without the due diligence piece brought in on the manager um, side or the ability to really deliver it across a model in one account for a client. So you're talking a lot about ESGs. Can you, I just wanted to diverge a little bit. Can you talk about why you focused your business around ESG investing? Yeah, I mean, it really started with climate change. I, I got introduced on the film Planetary to Bill McKibben, Paul Hawken, a group of astronauts and biologists, and they convinced me to go on my own journey. Uh, I honestly, you know, can say I did not accept at face value what they were saying, but I'm a really curious human being. And I spent the last six years really going as deep as I could with the time that I have on climate risk and specifically physical climate risk. And when I initially started thinking about all this, the only way to really address my concerns around that and the social issues facing humanity was through ESG. So we started with ESG as our filter, and then we moved over the last four years into looking at physical climate risk and believing prior to the pandemic that physical climate risk was going to be the single biggest economic threat to the capital markets that humanity has had to face. Um, you know, we've spent, I don't know if you've read Sapiens, um, which is a phenomenal book, yeah. but, you know, he articulates, I think, incredibly well that, that humanity built civilization starting 10,000 years ago because the climate um, became temperate and uh, right around 33 degrees latitude, north latitude. So that's where all the civilization started because that's the first place that climates became stable enough for us to stop being nomadic and start settling down. And 10,000 years in a 14 billion year history of the earth is a short time. And yet I think a lot of people are convinced that that will just, you know, stay that way forever. But the signs are not there, unfortunately, that our climate is going to remain that stable. Mm -hmm. And when you think about climate change, it's just four things really that we address around physical climate change. It's more floods and droughts, more extreme heat, and more extreme weather. And when you think about those four things, the models are actually the best models that you can look at for the capital markets. Like, you know, people look at political instability and try to build political models. People try to build economic models. People try to forecast the economy. There's nothing in the last 30 or 40 years that's as predictive as climate models. So if they're that predictive and we're not using them to assess our capital markets assumptions, it's just foolish at this point. And 
the biggest thing I would say that happened to us last year at our 2019 Sustainable Investment Conference is that a lot of the ratings agencies, including Moody's at the conference, said that they have acquired physical data companies, 427, Carbon Delta, um, a, a couple of others, so that they can start rating mortgages, municipal bonds, real estate around their exposure to physical climate change. So right now it's not priced in at all. It's a free risk <laughs> that you can get out of your portfolio. You know, the, the simplest explanation or example is you could own municipal bonds in Buffalo and Rochester and Vermont and Colorado, or you could own them in downtown Miami, Houston, and Northern California, where you're dealing with fires, floods, um, tidal flooding, and, and just city flooding for every storm. And there's no price differentiation right now. So if we could bring that lens in and we can start carving out real estate, mortgage, municipal bond exposures that are going to be, not only going to be, are already being affected by physical climate change and it's free to price that risk out. It, to me, it there's, makes no sense not to be um, filtering for that. Let's go on to your, your specific UMA that you're offering, which is the smart climate focused UMA. Can you talk about how that um, is delivered and what type of securities or uh, SMAs make up the smart climate focused UMA? Yeah, sure. So the, the first thing we did is we started talking to Wellington and uh, Wellington as a partnership with Woods Hole, which is the top climate focused science nonprofit or NGO in the world. They've got about 40 something climate scientists working for them. And uh, they've been doing research um, because of a guy named Spencer Glendon, who really originally started it, who's probably one of the smartest people I've ever talked to, um, around uh, physical climate risk and the capital markets assumptions. And uh, then McKenzie picked it up, and uh, McKenzie and Mercer have both now written papers and worked with um, Woods Hole, McKenzie specifically, just last year, end of last year, put out a 300-page, nine-case study um, document around physical climate risk. So Wellington was the first company that was really digging in on this. And, and we said, what would it look like to deliver that you know, to the retail client? And Wellington does not really do retail client delivery, but somehow, you know, thankfully, lucky stars, whatever, um, we convinced Wellington uh, to offer this strategy, which only exists at $50 million minimum um, institutionally, into a retail SMA model. And, and that really was the anchor piece that started it. And, and then we realized we couldn't solve every problem, but we could bring in sustainable infrastructure with KBI out of Ireland. We could bring in water asset management out of New York, which has been doing you know, water delivery and, and, and addressing issues around um, loss of water accessibility for, I think, since 92, they've been doing that. And then Green Alpha, who has been calling themselves kind of the next economy manager for years now, um, also um, at least eight years on their um, next generation funds, who are looking at the dangers and risks of climate change. So all four of these companies really address in one way or another one or both of these issues. And, you know, whenever you have an issue like climate change or a pandemic, 
uh, is a perfect example. You're going to have companies that are going to do horribly, and you're going to have companies that are going to do great. And, and you need to look at it through both lenses. You know, Zoom is a great example of a company that, you know, tremendously benefited. I think they hit 200, you know, this week. So that I think they're up a few hundred percent from when the pandemic started um, versus the airline industry, which, you know, got decimated because of the pandemic. You're going to have the same winners and losers in uh, the world of climate risk. Um, so we started with those four companies that we had to build comprehensive models. So we brought in at least ESG managers who were doing diligence around TCFD um, adherence to physical climate risk assumptions. So we built it out with stance. Right. Um, uh, Jeff, what is a TCFD? Uh, the, the, the task force for climate financial disclosure. Okay. The acronym does not exactly match the, the words. And, and that came out at the end of 18 in partnership through the UN around what does a world look like with one and a half or two degree up to four degree warming scenarios and how should companies self-report around that? And companies actually, compared to any other thing that they've been asked to report about, companies have voluntarily reported on climate risk quicker and better than any historical um, thing, whether it's gender disparity or CO2 emissions or whatever you, you might want to think about. So the disclosures have been great uh, and it's allowed all these uh, physical climate risk companies to really dig in and, and look at what companies have exposure and what companies don't. So we brought in other managers, Federated Hermes, which does an incredible job around shareholder engagement around climate issues. Uh, Alliance Bernstein, which has really the top municipal bond impact fund and uh, looks at adherence to physical climate risk data points when they are buying municipal bonds. That's the other great thing, too. I mean, the fact that we, we have a municipal bond delivery through Alliance Bernstein that is client-specific. It's not model-specific. Hmm. So we bring the state-specific exposure of the client to Alliance Bernstein before the portfolio is invested. And Alliance Bernstein will try to adhere to as much of that state exposure, assuming there's a state income tax um, need there that they can. Um, obviously, if you're in North Dakota, that's difficult to do. But if you're in Connecticut or California, um, it's very fairly easy to do that. Right. And is Alliance Bernstein, when they're building these client-specific portfolios, how do they know, what kind of information are you providing them? In Specific client tax data hmm. directly to Alliance Bernstein. There's a questionnaire that is completed by the advisor with their client that is submitted to Alliance Bernstein and they review that before they purchase the bonds. And the bonds don't get, I, I like to set expectations. That, that means that if you have a million dollar bond portfolio that you're purchasing, because you have a $2 million account that's moderate, you're, you're not going to get a million dollars in bonds tomorrow. That's, you know, it might take weeks to ladder in a portfolio like that or a month uh, or more to get it fully invested. Um, but it's definitely worth it. And what about reporting? How do you handle that when... The Texas is involved and with these SMA, all the different SMA managers. How do you report this to your clients? What do they see on their the, statements? The, the best way, and, and we're an RIA getting the same delivery of this, the advisor can look at Natixis for sleeve level reporting. So they can see the performance of each manager. But because this is all being delivered in one custodial account, even though it's nine managers and all the holdings are being listed, 
bad advisor, whatever their performance reporting tool is, whether it's Black Diamond or Advent or whatever they might be using, they're literally running the performance reporting for the individual off of their custodial performance report. Mm -hmm. But the advisor, we can sit with the advisor and show the advisor, look, you know, this has been the attribution of each manager. This is why we might be firing a manager and adding a manager. So we can dig into all of the sleeve level reporting for the advisor. Do you believe in doing sleeve level reporting? Because isn't there an overlay component on this where you're saying, well, this client does maybe doesn't want this or doesn't want that. Maybe they already have a position in a particular stock and don't want any more, or, or they have some tax loss requirements that change the holding. So doesn't that change the the model and to give you dispersion from the model? Yeah, but the Texas can still dig down and do the sleeve level reporting on an account basis. So not on a generic, we, we get quarterly reporting on the whole model delivery. So that is generic. But then for an individual client, they could still dig down on the sleeve level reporting. But I, I think what a client wants to see is their model delivery performance. I don't think a client wants to sit there. I mean, even when you're delivering mutual fund models, it, you might spend a little bit of time on each mutual fund, but at the end of the day, the client's most interested in what their performance is. Indeed. And that should be cheaper. It should uh, give them more benefits. It should give them tax loss harvesting. Is this, as far as you know, is this the first climate focused UMA product on the market? As far as we know, it definitely is. There are ESG UMAs, uh, First Affirmative was probably the first to do that, but the specific climate focus, um, this is definitely the first uh, that is available. And, and mm-hmm. to have something available on every custodial platform, because Natixis is available mm-hmm. at this level, we haven't seen anything that is ESG and climate focused. So how does an advisor open this account? How, do they just call you and say, hey, I want this? And how does it, how does it get set up? What's the, the logistics of setting up an account? Yeah, it, it, it's as simple as a sub-advisor manager agreement, and it's a tri-party agreement with Natixis and Gitterman and the advisor. And then once that's set up, we walk the advisor through the paperwork process of opening single accounts. It's a little more extensive than opening up a mutual fund model with the client, but that's because you're trying to get individual tax information. You're trying to get... Um, you know, the tax bracket of the client on uh, the municipal bond side. So it's a little bit more extensive when you first open it, but then manager changes are done behind the scenes. So it doesn't require additional paperwork. So once you've got the account open, it's pretty seamless from there. And does the client have to approve? Is this, this is fully discretionary. There's no client approvals. Right. Yeah. And the, are you actively marketing this to other advisors? We are starting Monday. Uh, it, it is available. Timing. We have met with other advisors already, but, but yeah. Monday the 15th. Uh, and June, then on June, 15th. June 18th at RIA channel, uh, if you go on their website, we are running a webinar with a couple of the managers and the Texas on, on how the program works. And that's our first kind of unveiling mm-hmm. from the public, except for your podcast. Yes, yeah, so I wanted to get, I wanted to be first. You have the scoop, Craig. All right. So uh, let's talk about the Sustainable UMA Summit. Can you describe that and why you started that? Yeah, so we've been doing that for four years. Uh, this year would have been the fifth year. We might still do it virtually in October, mm-hmm. but uh, we've been doing it for four years. It really started because we wanted to bring all the managers that were doing ESG into one place 
and then invite a bunch of our friends, other advisors, and learn. Because we didn't start out doing this as an outsourced CIO business. We just started out initially doing it for our own clients. Uh, so we just wanted a local event in New York. There were a lot of events in Colorado and California around ESG, but really not much happening in New York back in 2016. Now you can't throw a rock and not hit an ESG event. But, but back then it was the first. And then we did it for two years and the United Nations came along and said, hey, would you want to do this at the UN? And we jumped at the chance and started working with UNCDF and UN Office of Partnerships and, and um, UNCDF, UNCDF. A Community Development Fund and um, UN Office of Partnerships. Uh, met Elliot Harris, the chief economist at the UN. We started bringing this whole idea of the NGO nonprofit side at the same time that the sustainable development goals were becoming a really big thing. They had been passed in 2015 and we have these goals that are set for 2030. So this kind of short window of accomplishing a lot of major initiatives and goals around creating more equality for everyone on the planet and, and reducing risk around climate and other things. So it was just a great partnership and that has been really a wonderful experience. And, and we're looking more into the public-private partnership market about how do we generate money to solve problems across both the public market and the private sector? Because you need both to get the capital required to address a lot of these bigger problems. And on that note, I wanted to wrap things up. Where can people find you and find you and your firm online? Gittermanwealth.com. And that's two T's, G-I-T-T-E-R-M-A-N. That is. And then at fintech, F-I-N-T-E-C-H dot TV for all of our archived impact shows. And we will put all this in the show notes. And Jeff Gitterman, thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks, Craig. Really appreciate it. Hey, it's Craig again. Just a quick wrap from my interview with Jeff. I really got some interesting stuff out of this. Uh, you know, I'm always interested to talk to advisors and, and broker dealers and other firms and how they're using some of the products that all my other clients are building. You know, my, I have a lot of clients that build UMA technology in order to allow advisors to do this. So uh, companies like Natixis that are putting out these, these products and ability to uh, enable advisors to scale and, and run many, many accounts uh, is, is fantastic. Uh, being able to bring SMAs and UMAs down market to to uh, Main Street to mass affluent, I think, is a is a great goal. Uh, some of the, the the ideas of that Jeff had about why more advisors aren't adopting SMAs were important. The fact that he can bundle the solution at just seventy basis points, I think, is is very reasonable. Considering a lot of the other options out there can run double that. Uh, the smart climate focused UMA seems very timely. Uh, I think it's it's a niche, as, as Jeff said, is growing tremendously and could really be something that's, that's going to take off soon. And finally, you know, they're, um, uh, the way they're productizing and the way they're doing their account opening and how straightforward it is and easy, I really love that. Uh, I think this is really a, a, a firm that's taking off, and I think a lot of other RIAs will be emulating this focus uh, and this, this uh, the way the way Jeff has, has structured things. Uh, so again, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to like us, hit it, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and I'll see you all again next time.